last night we were at a, a border crossing called Medica and there were still streams of people coming across and on the far side of the border there are about two to three kilometers of queues of just people queuing to get across the border. But then there's just heartbreaking images of kids uh, asleep, on, on sitting on top of suitcases, elderly women uh, sitting on, on the ground. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. A haunting border crossing from Ukraine. People just like us leaving behind everything they know and everyone they love. And an unpredictable dictator with his finger on the nuclear button. So what is it like to stand and to witness this brutal history in the making and to see the faces of women and children set in fear in the freezing temperatures of a land not too unlike our own. Today, I'm talking to Irish Independent Ireland editor Fionn Sheehan, who's just back from the Ukraine-Polish border, where he saw firsthand the never-ending lines of human misery caused by Russian President Vladimir Putin. He tells me of a refugee crisis like no other and of a population of middle-class, educated families displaced forever by a neighbour with a dark soul. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. So just actually did want to start with the cold because I said that I texted you when you were there. How did you cope with it? Like, is it dry cold or is it, you know, that sort of ski resort cold, which is copable with when you're moving around, but not when you're standing no, still? No, it, it was just, yeah, it was, as you said, dry cold and wind chill coming across mm. you at, at different parts, particularly when you're out at the border crossings. They're very open, and mm. so the wind could just whip, whip through you. And like the temperatures range from about uh, minus nine was the was the coldest we we came across one night. We were out in a minus six one night because we were out uh, very late at a border crossing at about two o'clock in, in the morning, and literally your hands just started to seize up after a couple of minutes. I was wearing the five layers of what I would regard as kind of good quality hike, sure, hiking yeah. gear that I brought mm. brought with me that I have. But so the, the the locals were saying, well, look, this is kind of normal. But nonetheless, you could have women and kids queuing for 20 hours at border crossings out in the cold. So they would be dropped off at the border by the father or husband or, or whoever. They can't leave the country because they're they're in fighting age of 16 to 60. So all the men are, are still in the country. So the women and children would be dropped there and then they would have to queue to get through Ukrainian uh, control and, and Polish control. And they would come through then on, on the far side and um, they'd be greeted with, you know, aid stations offering them food and hot soup. But the 20 hours like and they're standing in yeah, the they're literally standing, and they have yeah. to stand. <clears throat> Because well, you lose your place in the queue, I presume. There's nowhere, yeah, you lose your place. So there's yeah. no kind of nice waiting room mm. where you go in and sit and they, they call you forward. So you're literally just, you go to the far side of the border, uh, we're told you can see just the long range of queues. Now, there are some, there are then car queues going back five kilometres, tailbacks. There were some people who were getting dropped off uh, further back and they had to walk 
uh, 10 kilometers to, to, to get to the border. And it is predominantly women and young, young children, mm. like 98% of the people you come across are women and, and young children. And some elderly people, a lot of them wouldn't be able for the, the journey and some elderly men and non-Ukrainian men. So it's, it, it's just really surreal kind of scene to be seeing these people. If you saw, if you took them out of that context of being at the border, and you saw them coming along, pulling their single suitcase and having a, a kid beside them. You think, oh, they must be going getting a flight somewhere or something yeah. like that, or getting a train. And it's just that it's just a constant stream of people. I stood at one point at Medica, which is the main border crossing because it's only an hour from Lviv. So people going to Western Ukraine are coming out there. It's also near a, a train station. There's a massive refu- refugee reception center there. And I just stood there rather than moving. We're kind of constantly moving around, meeting and talking to people. I just stood there for an hour just watching it. I tried to keep count of the number of people who were coming. And it, it was just continual stream of mm. of people kind of dragging one suitcase or with a backpack uh, on, on their back. And as you talk to them, a lot of them kind of they, they don't complain about the fact that when you talk to them, they go, where have you come from? They're traveling for three days in a car with, with two or three kids. We met one woman who had traveled from Dnipro, which was has been hit just this weekend. It wasn't been hit previously, but she had got out before because they knew the war was coming. Traveled three days with her husband across the country with two kids, eight and ten, and a six-month-old baby in a car for three days. And then they had queued up and... She said she got through relatively fast in about six hours because she was carrying a baby strapped to her her chest, so she was let she up was the let queue. up let up yeah. the queue quite quickly. But she wasn't complaining about this. This was normal that people would be traveling for this this length of time. I mean, without uh, without toilet, food, hot well, this water, is the things nothing. That yeah. I was thinking of like, I mean, how do they change the child's nappy yeah. in that cold out in the open? Mm-hmm. Like feed them, you know, mix a bottle, whatever it is they're doing. Yeah. Like it is just amazing the resilience of human beings. And they're just so stoic. So they don't complain about about that. They're just kind of relieved to get across. They're very tired from there. You know, they're they're. There were aid stations there and there was some outdoor marquees and stuff like that. But there was, the only solid building on that side of the border that they could go into was a, effectively a Lidl and Aldi. Bidronka is the, the Lidl and Aldi discount supermarket. There's one at the border because that's the border crossing that's quite busy most of the, the time. There's a supermarket there. And as you walked into the supermarket, you got hit by the waft of air conditioning, warm air. Lovely. So there's about 10, 15 people just kind of huddled inside in, in the doorway there. And the manager was like going grand, whatever. Trying to get a bit of heat. And, and this supermarket was then fully functional. So it's, it's a very different type of refugee crisis. You look over the years, you would have seen kind of uh, Western Sahara or, or, or Asia, be it, be it some in, in South America as well. The classic is uh, people in a, a very poverty-stricken country fleeing war out in the middle of a desert or an isolated area, coming across a, a border into another equally poor country and then camped out in in a, in a tent there, mm-hmm. uh, being run by aid agencies. This is very different. People are arriving. They might be there at the border for, for two or three hours, but there is, they are greeted by, by, by food stations, uh, by medical uh, assistance, um, not great on comfort in terms of somewhere to sit around like that, but they're moved on from there either by bus, uh, by car, 
uh, dropped off at a uh, train station. Uh, there were Polish people just driving to the border to offer people lifts to wherever they wanted to go. So, so that was it's all quite remarkable. So you can mm. be sitting, once you cross the border, you can be waiting for about two or three hours, but then you will be moved on to the next point. If you have nowhere to go, you were brought to a reception centre, you may be sleeping there for the night and then accommodation will be, will be found for you. There's around about one and a half million Ukrainians already living in Poland, uh, particularly after the, the the partial invasion, the, the takeover of, of the Donbass and, and Crimea, a lot of them came in the last uh, eight years. There's a lot of cultural ties and family ties between Poland and Ukraine, so there is a, a welcome from them there. And then because you have the access as well of, of Germany, Italy, Austria, the Baltic countries can all get there as well and, and shuttle people away. You, you weren't getting that kind of build-up of people sleeping out in the cold night or in a tent or anything like that. There was somewhere for them to go, even if that well, was so a big far, reception centre. In so other far, words, yeah. They, so far, they've all had somewhere to go. They've either had relatives yeah. or friends or somebody to take them in. Um, and then obviously we have, you know, Ireland and various other countries yeah. have taken in a handful, really, compared to the... Uh, the amount that are coming over. Well, when you look at the population of Ukraine, 44 million, the first time I read that, I thought I had read it wrong. I just had never considered how vast a country it is mm. and how massive. Like, how many more are going to come? Well, the UN estimates were, were currently at about two and a half, two point seven million, something like that. The UN estimate a couple of weeks back was anything up to four million, but that might now be an under mm. estimate. The war has is 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 strange. It it, it is in north, south, and uh, east of the country. It hasn't hit the the west uh, at all, and you can be in part of the north and south, and it hasn't uh, approached you yet. If you go off a rule of thumb that once a war is within fifty kilometers of you, you need to get out of the place. Um, there's a lot of areas that haven't been 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 hit yet. So hence, people haven't moved, uh, or they have moved to the west of, of Ukraine, where they feel it is it is relatively safe uh, around the, the big city of Lviv and and mm. cities around around that area. Once the war starts coming in that direction, well, then people are are basically going to be moving toward towards Poland and and Slovakia. Uh, Romania and Moldova again. So that's going to cause, that's going to be the next wave of of refugees. So this isn't ending. This is just going to keep on on going. So, you know, while we're looking at in Ireland taking in 80 to 100,000, you'll easily have that. There are buses pulling up in a town called Shemisil. So where, where we were very often was Medica was the border crossing. Ten kilometres in the road is, is Shemisil. Big town, very big, very big town. Big reception centre there, 3,000 beds in it for, for overnights and people weren't staying there beyond one or two nights. And just in the car park, uh, buses from all over Europe. We wandered around one day. There was three of them going to, three going to, to Germany, uh, Estonia, they all have maps and uh, flags in the front. Estonia, Lithuania, mm. Turkey, uh, guys from from Italy. So they were literally loading fifty people on board and taking them off. And then when they reached that destination country, they were finding accommodation for them there, either with the Ukrainian embassy or charity organisations or whatever, similar to Ireland. Yeah. If you can get to that place, we will find uh, refuge for you. Mm. So the system in Poland was seen to be working 
pretty well. Bit of no frills to it, but nonetheless, people were being found accommodation uh, and and food and getting assistance from from the EU. You'd be more worried about Moldova, which is not in the EU, uh, very impoverished country, mm-hmm. one of the poorest uh, in Europe, and they were not coping uh, as well at all. And they are the nearest if you were fleeing. Odessa or Mariupol, that's where you will end up. Even though we saw the the loads of reports about how they were giving what they could, weren't they? The poor people are. Sometimes they tend to be even more charitable. There was lots of reports about them opening their homes and letting people sleep on the floor or wherever. Yeah, just the, 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 the countries surrounding... The Ukraine, the generosity that they have shown is just is just amazing. And you were meeting Polish people, be it providing transport or or accommodation or just volunteering at at, at the aid stations, and they do genuinely feel that this is this is not just a, na- a neighbor that is being attacked here. That it is this is an attack on them and their way of life since the collapse of the the Berlin Wall, uh, the end of communism, the, the demise of the Warsaw Pact that they feel if this can happen to Ukraine, that they're next. And obviously, if you're in Moldova, you have to be very worried about that. The Baltic states of uh, Lithuania, Latvia and Estonia, and even in, in, in obviously in, in Poland as well, which mm. would have a, a, a size of a population. The feeling is if Russia can get away with this, well, then that, that they won't stop. And that that Putin is looking to, to reclaim the glory days of the Soviet Union. So when you arrive out there, like firstly, I suppose to bring it back a little bit, what does the border look like without this massive influx of refugees? Is it kind of like, uh, you know, is there little towns along the border? Is there Mm -hmm. actual crossing points? Is there like we used to see when there was the, you changed your cash going up north? Is is it like that? It's it's vastly bigger than what we had here. These are enormous facilities on on the border they're a bit like uh a toll booth on the motorway right if you in ireland m1 m4 or go to the port tunnel you go to all those those toll booths where there are passport control in them there are customs buildings Mm. uh, there so they're they're obviously checking for smuggling they're doing the customs taxation forms and passports and, and security is all being done there. So these are big facilities. Uh, on the Polish side, mainly motorway. In fact, they're upgrading uh, some of the, the crossings at, at, at the moment. Um, one place in Marika, they actually, the motorway is about a month away from being finished. So that was causing a bit of hassle with, with, with traffic. But you're, you're talking about three or four lane motorways coming up uh, mm. to, to, the, to the border crossings. And then beside them, there are, they're kind of cafes, shops, a lot of Bureau de Change uh, offices there mm. as well. And then there are towns, yeah, adjoining, adjoining mm. that does uh, as well. So you're you're predominantly not arriving. Some of them are very isolated, so others others are, are not. You're, you're relatively near uh, civilization. So vastly bigger than anything we would have had experienced uh, even during the troubles when you had security checkpoints on the mm. border, which tended to be small uh, enough uh, facilities with, with with barriers. It's interesting from an Irish perspective to see this that this is a crossing point out of the of the EU. Mm. If the Northern Ireland Protocol hadn't happened, you can just imagine that this is what the we were we were facing <laughs> uh, into on 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 this uh, island. So it is. The Polish border is effectively that bridgehead between uh, the EU and the, the rest of the old 
Soviet Union, Russia, and, it, and its satellite states uh, heading heading into, into Ukraine. So that you know th- that infrastructure that that is there. It's a five hundred kilometer border, but there's only eight crossing points along it. Well, official and crossing the towns, points. I presume, are built up beside the crossing points. Yeah, or or else there's kind of a huddle of buildings mm. uh, has has built up beside them, and the towns are, are a couple of and are they of kind of back. like are they one horse town type things that you expect at these border crossing areas with a bit of a, a grocery, maybe a hotel, a bar? And yeah, it, it, they are at, at the Pacific border, but then back a, a mile or two, you can have have large towns. The, the, the town of Shemisil is is big town uh, population about 50, 60,000. Okay. So big, big lo- location. Uh, Kokuska, likewise, Dorohusk was more isolated, but the town of Shelm with about a population, about 70,000 was only 10 kilometers up, up the road. Mm. So yeah, the, the border crossing themselves may not have a big, big population in their own right, but they are near uh, large pop, large population centers. So they were they were busy anyway. There's parking. There's there's loads of uh, which we found curious. There's loads of car parks at the border, and for for 24 hours. And we were kind of looking at them, going, "Why don't you drive across the border?" And it's an insurance issue, a tax and insurance issue. Oh, you have right. to have correct insurance to go EU and and mm-hmm. and into Ukraine. So people would park at at the border. They go across. On a bus or whatever, and and they, and they come back. That's or, sort of reminiscent of the people going up to Newry to buy the toilet rolls and stuff yeah. in the past on the buses, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Or, I'm or sure the, wherever the drink is cheaper is also the of water, significance. The water smuggler is coming <laughs> back it. across into into Cavan. Uh, it's it's so it's a bit it's a bit like that. So you know, big customs borders. Mm. I'm sure anybody who's gone uh, US into Canada or US into Mexico will have experienced the the exact. Uh, mm. Same thing. So we take it for granted now because you can effectively you can drive the whole way across Europe and and not hear a, a border crossing. So it is just quite strange that you you We've suddenly hit this. We've forgotten what it looks like yeah. nearly. Yeah. And so when you land there, I mean, obviously this is you're going into a crisis situation, mm. and uh, you know, despite what people think, we don't actually get training for any of this really. Mm. So where do you go? Like, where did your seven mark? go or did you have did you get yourselves i mean i presume the hotels are all booked out with ukrainians and yeah we we went at fairly short notice shall we say there was yeah. a decision to go at, at two and there was a flight at five and we just wanted to to get out there because effectively look we were going into poland mm. we're in the eu mm. that that's perfectly safe it is on on the border with a country that that is at war but the, the the Polish border side is is fairly safe. Uh, so we arrived out, rented a car uh, at at the airport, and and, and took off uh, to to visit border crossings. So then, when we went looking for hotels, we then found curiously there was no hotels because there's loads of Ukrainians who are coming across, booking into hotels for a couple of weeks, hoping that the war will end and they'll be able to to go back home again. So we needed to get hotels around about an hour. Uh, an hour and a half away away from from the, the border, border, and you could get you could get hotels then. And as you move across Poland, yeah, you can you can get right. You can get a so The further which, away you go, you're going to yeah. get pick up something. Um, I recall years ago being in Albania during the Kosovo Albanian conflict, and it was like every entrepreneur was out there. Everybody who had a spare room was renting it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly the foreign media who appear to have lots of money in that country be slightly mm-hmm. different in Poland. But there was translators coming out of, you know, who had worked in doctor's surgeries. There was mm-hmm. 
I thought it was amazing that an economy nearly built up, built up mm. really, really quickly because of this crisis situation. And all of a sudden, certain things were worth a lot of money. Um, I'm sure that's probably slightly happening there as well. Like a bit. We, we, we actually thought somebody who stuck up a sign saying media centre and charged 200 quid or whatever to be based there for the day would, would, would make a grand bit of, bit of profit. But no, I mean, like I suppose unlike, you know, Albania yeah. back then, Poland's, you know, it's it's extremely developed. Middle class. And, yeah. middle class mm. You know, the, the road network quite quite similar to Ireland, the, the standard living. Like, things are a lot cheaper there, mm. obviously, than, than than they are here. But nonetheless, the, the, the standard of living is, is, is quite comparable, certainly. You know, the, the, again, it's it's not like a refugee crisis where people are arriving at a border and there's no food there either. Yeah. There is food. There's a supermarket at that border. The, 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 well, there's no shortage of, of food or mm. that. Nobody's going to be starving when they come across. The, 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 the real crisis with, with aid is getting it into the, the, the parts of Ukraine that are that are under fire where you mm. can't get, get uh, aid uh, into. So it is a, it's a very different kind of surreal scenario in, in that regard in mm. that, you know, as you say, you, you look at these people coming across with, with suitcases, they're, they're well wrapped up. And if you took away the context of where you were, you'd be looking at them thinking they're going to get in a train or they're going to get in yeah. a plane or something like that. So that's, it, it. that was what was surreal about it. it. It's not like the refugee crises that we have seen in the past because ultimately this is the biggest one mm. we've had on, on the continent of Europe in 80 years since mm. the end of World War II. Now also, I suppose we do have to bear in mind that probably those first people out were the ones who could afford it and yeah. who had decent cars and et cetera. Mm-hmm. So they are probably very much the middle-class Ukrainians yeah the wealthier ones that have got out first and maybe what'll come in the second, yeah. third wave won't be quite as, you know, they probably mightn't have cars. And There was elements uh, as well that, you know, some Ukrainian men were able to get out before the, the war started when, when uh, it, was, it was easier to, to, to get out. So would have made a run for it beforehand to avoid... Uh, the prospect of being mm. killed or or, or conscripted uh, for the army. Uh, likewise, there there was a sense that yeah, people who had cars, uh, obviously two cars in the family, because if the husband or father was staying back, they needed to keep the yeah. car th- themselves. So if you have a two car household, that that they were able to take the, the car with them. So yeah, the people arriving uh, on foot. There was though a mixture of middle class people who just you know th- they didn't have car themselves to be to be dropped off, and then it was very poor people as well who mm. were arriving across the border and didn't really have any any money or or any ability to get anywhere. In that regard, it was, it was quite interesting that that the, the poles had signs up everywhere saying everything is free so they could get transport onto where they needed to go to they could get accommodation they could get food and they weren't going to be charged mm. uh, for it at the same time when we were one of one of our last days i did see a sign up saying be careful of people approaching you offering you uh, free travel or accommodation who then later try to charge you for it. So you're always going to get always. some form they of scammers kicking in. But in the vast, the world, aren't they? You could, you know, you were meeting Polish people at the border and, and, and talking to them and just chatting to them as you were, you were standing there and they were literally had driven from all parts of Poland to just, just collect people. And the same goes for people from, from Germany uh, as well. We were standing at a border across on Monday and these five 
fairly hard-looking fellas came walking towards us and we thought the fight was going to break out or something. We were kind of looking at what, what's going on here. Next thing we got chatting to one of these guys and there were five German guys who'd come over from Munich and literally just got in the cars, driven to the border and going, we will collect people and bring them back to Germany to right. wherever they want to go. So it was just that immense generosity from a whole, the whole continent that you're seeing in Ireland as well, that mm. people just want to do something to help out here. Within that, there's a problem as well because the organizational structure wouldn't be as coherent as we would be used to it uh, here in terms of, of a system that is in place. And likewise, the age, there is, you can see a problem building up there that the, the wrong sort of aid has been sent Yeah, I there. wanted to ask you about that because people with all the best will in the world are collecting and sending items from here that may not be suitable. Yeah, again, it, it it's not a third world country where people are coming out and don't have a, a bit of yes. clothes on, on on their back. So we were visiting uh, aid centre and it particularly struck me uh, in the town of Medica, which is across the railway line from, from where the, the border is. We went to the sports centre there and again they had 300 camp beds laid out again. People staying there being moved on the, 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 the following day and out the back there was a smaller sports hall literally stacked to the roof with all sorts of it. So there was a, a, a uh, there was a mountain of nappies and there was a mountain of, of medical equipment. There was a corridor full of water. But then there was also rooms off that that were just piled high with boxes of clothes, medical equipment, just nobody quite clear what the stuff was. And this was just stuff being, being dropped off by Poles and German people and, and people bringing truckloads of stuff. And they had nowhere to to store. There was there was so much of it. I mean, so, even the sorting of that would be a kind of yeah, an operation. Like the volunteers were saying to us, like, we have to go through all of this yeah. this stuff. So, if you are if you want to do something with the you can have the best intentions of sending out a box of clothes, but a is it appropriate clothing for mm. people who are emerging in in those temperatures? And b who's it going to? Who's asked for it? Who's going to sort through it? And who's going to who's going to distribute it? So that's where aid agencies come in, and that's why if you're giving money to an aid agency. They have got the infrastructure that that's in place. They have the logistics in place. Uh, they know how to deal with it. We met a number at a number of different points. We met volunteers from from Caritas, and when we were asked them who they were, we, we figured out Caritas is Trocra, so they are the the Catholic um, development agency charity in in Poland, the same as we have Trocra uh, in in Ireland, and they were receiving funding from Trocra. So what they were doing was setting up aid stations. They were involved in the centres. They were involved in uh, logistics of transporting people on and now at this point they've moved towards giving cash payments to refugees who are in Poland and and don't have any money yes. so they're 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 financially supporting mm. them so there's a big difference between that so you give your tenor to Trocra and they say it's for the, the Ukrainian refugee appeal that's where it's going as opposed to a box of clothes that is and arriving the at a border costs, and you don't know I mean, where it's going. You can arriving. just imagine now, especially with the price of petrol and diesel going up, how much it costs to drive something yeah. from Ireland across the UK, across the Netherlands yeah. and then across Poland. Now, having said that, you know, there were Irish groups that we spoke to who were in touch with people inside in Lviv. We spoke to a group of, of uh, guys from Dublin who had gone out, but they'd been in touch with they, they knew people in the Ukraine before they went out. They had a shopping list, effectively, of of medical supplies uh, and specific food that was wanted in, in this hospital. And they brought that to the border, that went across. And then they had cash. So they were going around 
nearby cities in, in Poland getting the hospital things that, that they wanted. So they wanted generators because they, they anticipated that the electricity was going to be cut out. So the lads drove up to uh, a city called Rejau, which is about two hours from the border, went around a lot of uh, hardware stores there, bought a lot of, of generators, drove them back to the border or something from the border into Lviv. So that was going on as well. But again, in that case, yeah, that was that was small scale, but they, they were taken effectively a shopping list of orders from specific doctors in a hospital. They were able to get them the exact medical supplies that, that they wanted. The big difficulty is going to be, hopefully, when, when this war ends, our humanitarian corridors uh, open, that the aid agencies are going to need to be able to get in get in fast. Yeah, big time. But they will Especially have. Marvel, yeah. Getting the supplies won't be the problem. You mm. can get them in, in Poland yeah. and, and Germany. So you, people really have to think, what is the point of me sending a box of clothes out from... Ireland to the Polish border when they can't get beyond that anywhere. Uh, at the Polish border, aid agencies there are providing people with, with clothes uh, if if they need them, as opposed to giving money to the likes of, of UNICEF, Troker, Goal, who are providing uh, aid and logistics on the ground. We just have to get our heads back around that in this country because there has been a lot of damage done by, you know, those scandals that have come yeah. from... Charities, it really yeah. has. I mean, you do, you, you think, oh, who am I giving to here? I think a lot of the, um, you know, the payment scandals and mm-hmm. et cetera that went on. But we do have to, I think, get our heads around that and try and sort of act sensibly with our money. Well, it's because um, they have the partners in, in the country that, yeah. that they they are, are working with. So effectively, you they're know. They're also helping the local economy yeah. then, aren't they, as well? Yeah. Which has been bled dry, I presume, by this. By this. So, yeah. Like UNICEF or not, UNICEF Dublin going out with a truck full of full of stuff. Mm. They are UNICEF, um, the United Nations Aid Programme, and they are part of a wider logistical operation that has the ability to get supplies and then deliver them provided mm. that they are safe. Your difficulty at the moment is that a city like Mariupol, which is besieged, you can't get aid into it, you can't get refugees out. That's where your the, the massive concerns uh, are now and there's no agency in, in the world can can get in there because it's just not safe. How does it feel coming home? Uh, a bit warmer. <laughs> yeah, just, I know it was raining in in, in Dublin, but yeah, it, it, it's exceptionally sad. I hadn't experienced anything like that before. Maybe it's because I've become a father in the last eighteen months that it hit me a lot more than perhaps it, it would have done in the past. Because I was looking at kids pretty much the same age as my own son, Cain, yeah. who are just had been torn away from from their houses. Uh, from parents being brought into a, a different different country, enduring that that arduous journey and 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 getting to there. So yeah, it, it really does uh, hit you when you just see that you know literally the wave of humanity just just mm. coming towards you. These people who are forced to leave their homes through no fault uh, of their own uh, and now trying to to set up uh, for somewhere else. I was speaking, speaking to a woman. You know, you meet all sorts of people. The woman who came across the border to drop off her daughter with her sister and she was going back because her husband was was still there. woman with three kids that we were talking about had come across with a six-month-old six baby uh, in in her, her arms. Uh, a woman, a pretty striking woman in, in her 50s, 
who was saying, you know, she's quite happy living in a suburb of Kiev and she had to leave there and go to, to Italy and she knew people in Italy, so that was okay. But she said, I didn't expect to have to rebuild my life at my age. Yeah. And that, that was just striking that all these people, and some of them you talk to them, they think, ah, oh, we'll, we'll be going back in a few weeks. And then others just think that this could drag on for, for years. I suppose and we'll maybe whichever back. way they can cope with it, because if you can just get over the first couple of months of it maybe and yeah. think you're going back or yeah. everyone's different. And there's but a constant worry because they're, they're all leaving people behind. So when, yeah. when we talk about families leaving, yes and no, there are uh, families coming out together, but usually they're leaving people behind. A lot of elderly people not traveling because they just feel too arduous a journey and also they feel, well, look, this is my country. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, staying, I'm staying put. Uh, and obviously with husbands, fathers, brothers, everybody you meet has got some male relative who they are now worried about because they're either in the country or they're helping out with the, the civic guards or they're being conscripted into the army or they're just literally defending their, their neighborhood. They all speak about this idea of, no, he's staying behind and with other locals, he's going to defend the neighborhood. And, you know, if... Uh, for Russian T-117 tank comes know, down the road, no he's not going to have a whole no. lot, of, lot of a chance here. Not so on these weapons and these bombs and guns. I mean, human beings are no match for any of them. Um, I found it curious about the women. Like, where were the women? Like, I, like, you know, not every woman, I suppose, has a child that they have to leave with. Mm-hmm. They were all talking about the men being conscripted. There's a lot of women have stayed to fight. Yeah. Um, but they don't seem to be asked. No, it it uh, they seem to have a different view on on I find that e- weird. E- equality. Yeah. I suppose I'd be insulted uh, deeply. There were women, yeah, women were allowed to leave, but some were were obviously yeah. Were obviously it was a staying. choice for women, and then we, like, not for the men. We were also meeting people going back in. There mm. were men going back in to to help in 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 mm. in whatever way. There were families going back in on at train stations and you were kind of meeting and go, why are you going back? And they were like, well, the part of the country in Western Ukraine, they still felt it was safe. So they'd rather go back in mm. for another few weeks because, you know, one of the, the military theses is that you conquer a country and you take the capital and then the, everything else collapses. So that if the Russians take Kiev, Kiev then, you know, the, that might bring an end to the war. Unlikely, there's another thesis that then just people fight on uh, elsewhere. So none of them really know how long this is going to go on for. So they, these people are just of the view, well, I'm going to go back for as long as I can. And once the war comes in our direction, we'll get out again. So there was, yeah, it's a very pragmatic yeah. view to take. We we look at it and we think their country is at war. And they were looking at it going, yeah, but not not in my backyard not as such. Yeah, Literally, yeah. It, it hasn't reached within 50 kilometers of where I live. Therefore, it's safe enough there. Well, it is so vast. I mean, it's how many times the size of Ireland? You probably don't know off the top of your no, head. No, it, it's, I mean, it, it's just massive. Like I, mean, I was saying, to Romania is so vast. 44 million, like, yeah. It's, These countries are just enormous, like, that we don't even know. Well, if you look at it, you look at our own situation. I mean, we had the troubles for, for, for 30 years uh, on our, our own island. You know, I grew up down in Tipperary, which is about two and a half hour drive from the border. You know, my life and my family's life were never, never at, at risk. You know, we're never, never uh, touched by it. We're obviously Im- impacted by it by, by seeing these events in our island. But, you know, you could have events happening in Newry 
but in in Dundalk uh, across the border was 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 perfectly safe. Mm-hmm. So you know, we I suppose we we have had experience here where something can be happening in one part of a country, but in, in another part there's there's relative safety, and we're a very much smaller country than there. Should we be joining NATO? I don't even think it's that we should be joining NATO. I think we're going to have to be more open minded about the EU's view that it's the purpose of the EU is the peace and well-being of its citizens. Now we have its citizens basically under threat in the likes of Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, uh, Poland, Romania, who are looking at uh, an empire thinking that it can expand and take back its previous uh, territory. So if one of those countries gets invaded, what what are we going to what are we going to do? Are we just going to stand idly idly by? Uh, and standing idly by comes in a number of, of different forms. So we are sending military aid in inverted commas in line with our EU partners to Ukraine, but because we're of our neutrality, we're sending medical aid and petrol and things like that. That's fine. We'll we'll get away with that for now, but. The, the next phase of EU integration is probably going to be more on the on the defence and and security side. We have seen that this invasion has changed basically eighty years worth of attitudes in in Germany towards building up up their military. Uh, we're seeing that the Eastern European members of uh, of the EU are, are are turning to Brussels and saying, well, "What are you going to do to defend us?" So there might either be budgetary, structural, uh, treaty change, even coming at, at EU level to make it more of a of a security and defence entity rather than just an economic uh, entity. And that's going to pose questions for Ireland. Mm. Are we in and are we, are we fully in in a situation like that? And if that results in us... Um, having to in some way alter our neutrality, how do we feel about that? So we're not there yet, but you and I can both remember EU treaty referenda that happened in this country and spurious, utterly spurious arguments being put up mm-hmm. about Ireland's neutrality and the European army and all that all that kind of stuff. Well, there's now, you know, that was all hypothetical at the time. This is this is real. There is now a an oppressor on the borders of Europe who is ready, willing, and able to send tanks across the border and, and in, invade countries. So that's going to pose questions now for the EU on a very practical level. And Ireland, as a member of the EU, that is fully embedded in it at, a, at an, an economic level, even more so politically now after Brexit, what's our attitude going to be? And are we going to be looking for opt-outs of this, that, and the other, as we do on everything else to do with security and defence up to now? Or are we going to say, no, we are a full member of Europe? Because let's remember, you know, while people can debate uh, whether EU membership is a good thing or a bad thing, I happen to believe 50 years on, it has been an overwhelmingly positive thing. Yes, we had a bad experience of a decade ago as a result of 15 years ago, as a result of the, the economic crash the causes and consequences of it and the the, the subsequent view uh, that that countries that got into debt-laden situations had to pay their way out of that through austerity and taking on uh, on, on for, for their debt. I think apart from that, everything else I would have to say about our experience in the EU has been positive. Our country is 100 years old. 
this year, uh, the last 50 years, we have grown so dramatically because of our EU membership, culturally as well as, as economically, we've achieved actual uh, independence uh, with, with, with Brexit as well. We've seen how we're now closer to, to Brussels uh, than, than Birmingham. So that's that's the, the fundamental questions that we're now going to have to ask ourselves, right? Are we really in the EU or are we just kind of in it for the kind of the money parts? And that's all so really in other words, everything has changed now and oh, yeah, it's a different landscape that we're looking at anyway. Game changer, for certainly for continental Europe. We can sit over here and go, well, we're sure we're miles away from the action. And sure. And would we have to expand our army and stuff like that if we join NATO? Yeah, well, not, not even, yeah, you would if you, if you join NATO, but even on a, on a European level, on an, on an EU level, is there is there going to be uh, a demand now for people to to pool more resources uh, in in defense and that can include cyber security uh, border controls where are we going to contribute towards that because you know we, we have to remember we were discussing the outposts along the border those Eastern European countries backed us on on brexit on the Northern Ireland Protocol where we basically said yeah we want a different set of rules in place for us we border a non your EU country we want there to be a frictionless border there to remain in place to avoid conflict from breaking out. The Eastern European countries went along with that, even though uh, they have vast uh, border infrastructures uh, in place. So there's going to be, the question now is going to be, well, how grateful were we in, in that regard? How much do we want to be a, a full member uh, of, of, fully integrated member uh, of the European Union? So yeah, you're, you're talking about whatever about spending direct on our defence forces. It would be more the spending at a at an EU wide uh, level that we would have to to contribute to, and also you know just just signing up to to various common common defence protocols, various levels of cooperation. Where I'm not talking about dispatching uh, a brigade of the Irish Army over to um, over to the Polish border or or sending a few ships up to the Baltic Sea. I'm just saying as uh, that we would expand our level of cooperation well, we uh, and financing send, at an EU level. We might have to send personnel to the borders. You could ultimately, you yeah. probably would see that as regards the defence and you'd have to yeah. give a proportion. But, you know, I think it's certainly something we're going to have to look at well, it's, strongly it's, considering. The, the, it's, it's not a... It's not a philosophical question now anymore. Mm. It, it is a reality. And you are seeing that more and more in the world now that that uh threats that that build up are in actuality and and your your geography doesn't necessarily defend you anymore we were attacked by actors of some sort from russia in the last 12 months who at our most vulnerable when we were dealing with a global pandemic attacked our health service do we do we believe that that was just a few random uh russian criminals um who hacked into our system, or do we believe that that Russia uh, is uh, allowing such operators uh, to go about their their business of holding c- countries to ransom, uh, or that they are in, in some way sponsoring it because they want to undermine democracies? So I know where I stand on, on that argument. I don't think these these. Uh, um, and of course, the they also showed are operating us without the, the Russians knowing about their existence. They also showed us they were, you know, quite blatantly going to come into our waters and 
Yeah, and didn't you know? didn't particularly care. And yeah, I don't think we're going to get invaded off the coast of Dingle any any time time soon. But yeah, I mean our our integrity. Uh, our territorial integrity is dependent upon other people, and also geography. We've we've had the the luxury now uh, of uh, of not being like I mean, our neutrality was obviously important to us because it was a part of our identity post independence after after uh, uh, separating from from Britain, uh, and we're, we're obviously protective of that. But so too are. Those people in Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia who achieved their independence uh, from the, the Soviet Union after uh, the best part of seventy years of of oppression, they are also protective of their independence. Those countries have also. There was a fraught period in the nineties and the two thousands where it was always possible that they would go back to becoming Russian satellite states, having dictators in place, and these countries uh, have embraced uh, democracy and freedom and proper justice systems and it does now a question mark for us well are, are we willing to defend that as well and finally I suppose um, a bit of an odd one but uh, you know we've all been so taken up with COVID for the last two years and all of a sudden the light switched off and it was gone and that was it yeah. I presume in a situation like there there's no talk of it or not you were still getting people wearing masks All right. um, in 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 some situations um, going in and out of shops, but it very much depended upon the, the people themselves. Some refugees are coming across the border wearing wearing masks, so there was that general awareness of it. Obviously, you know it it'll spread like wildfire if there was to be a new variant or even the, the, the current. Uh, mild forms, it will spread like wildfire in a, in a scenario like that. You're cramming people together on a bus, for example, for, for 10, 20 hours. That'll just rip through it. People inside in reception centres having to sleep there overnight It would, in, in basically camp bed cots, which are stacked side by side, it'll go through it in, in place of that. So the, the conditions are kind of perfect for any disease, any virus to run to run riot. Um but, you know, so far that hasn't been a massive part of the... There's so much the, more on their minds. Like, really, yeah. You know, it is just amazing how we've gone from pandemic to yeah. war in uh, such a short space well, of time. Well, you look as well, you're now... There are now, like, the, the population of Lviv is believed to have gone up by about 50-60% uh, over the last three weeks as, as refugees move to there. So that would be conducive. It was all the things we were being warned about yeah. uh, up until uh, a, f- a few months back. Social distancing isn't really possible and mm. hand hygiene and all that in uh, a scenario like, like that. So thankfully, yeah, COVID was gone. But then that was believed to be one of the factors that was weighing upon the the Russians when they were planning the, the war anyway, that they were thinking, oh, well, they didn't want their own army being inhibited. Because so paranoid about it. No, that, that their thesis was, well, their own army could yeah. be half wiped out by uh, COVID running running rampant there, so therefore that wouldn't be conducive towards um, towards towards an invasion. Which and the takeover. Is, you like, know, yeah. well, you look back, uh, Spanish Food 1918 did, did World War I end because the the Germans uh, ran out of resources and were, and were starving uh, in, in the war of attrition, or did Spanish flu just run riot 
uh, in the in the trenches, and that's what brought it to a war, to an end. Incredible how history repeats itself, mm. all right, isn't it? Fiona and Sheehan, thank you very much. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.